It's wonderful to be with you again as we continue looking at Exodus. Um, I was thinking about being in this room today, and it might shock some of you, but some of the children who play games in this room on Sunday nights, sometimes they don't follow the rules of the games. And when my son Ian was growing up here, that just drove him crazy. Kids that would cut corners, not do as many laps as they were supposed to, not put the beanbag down when they were supposed to, whatever it was, just drove him crazy. He was a real rule follower. He loved to follow the rules and wanted to enforce that everyone should follow the rules. And that translated into his playtime at home, too. He and our neighborhood kids had a lot of fun things going on all the time, and Ian was kind of the leader. He was one of the older kids, and so he was often the one who made up all the rules for everything, and he would write them down, and I've saved some historical documents of the rules that he made for things in our neighborhood, and I came across one the other day that was uh, just for him and his sister, Amy. They had made a fort out of a box, and Ian was the president of the fort, of course. (laughs) He didn't struggle with rule following, but he struggled with some other things, but... And Amy was the vice president, and so he made a list of rules. It said, it said uh, rules for the vice president, Amy, listen to the president, <laughs> Ian. That was the sum total of the rules. <laughs> Pretty simple. <clears throat> well, today we're going to be looking at God's rules for his people, the nation of Israel. And while the Exodus event is the focal point of deliverance in the Old Testament. The covenant at Sinai that we're going to study today is where we see God personally relating to the people of Israel as a nation by establishing his laws for them and continuing to bring to fulfillment the covenant that he had made with Abraham. In Hebrews 11, if you've been looking ahead at your memory verses to come, you would have noticed that Joseph, it says, by faith when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus. This is referring back to Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 to 25, where Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. And when they left Egypt in the Exodus, they did just that, as uh, Exodus 13, 19 told us. These promises that God had made to the patriarchs were coming to fulfillment through the events recorded for us in Exodus. The Israelites have multiplied, just as God had promised, and God is beginning to establish them as his nation in order to bring them into their own land. We've already covered in Genesis through Exodus 2,000 more or more years of history. And now things are going to begin to slow down dramatically because the Israelites stay camped at Sinai for only one year's time. But the content of the revelation given by God during that year is going to take us through the rest of the book of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus, and Numbers chapters 1 through 10. So one-third of the Pentateuch covers this one year of time that the Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai. That's pretty remarkable. And so it's a pretty weighty portion of scripture that we need to consider very carefully. So open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. 
where we left off from last week, Exodus 19. And today we're going to cover a lot again, Exodus 19 through 31. And today we're going to consider four truths about God's commands that remind us of his gracious and holy name so that we will live in joyful obedience to him. Four truths about God's commands that remind us of his gracious and holy name so that we will live in obedience to him. So the first truth that we're going to consider is from Exodus chapter 19 and going on a little bit into 20. And this is that God's commands follow our relationship to God. Or we could also say God's commands flow out of a relationship to God. Exodus 19 records for us Moses' first interaction with God at Sinai, three months since the Israelites left Egypt. Moses was continuing to act as God's representative. And here at Mount Sinai, we see the relationship of God to the Israelites solidified as God reveals how he would continue to relate to this people moving forward. So key verses to understanding this whole section and to understanding the Mosaic Covenant are in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. So look at those verses with me. Chapter 19, 4 through 6. God says to the Israelites through Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey obey my voice and keep my covenant, then... You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God begins his revelation here to Moses by calling the Israelites to remember his gracious choosing of them and his miraculous deliverance of them from Egypt. The Israelites were to remember to act in light of this great deliverance. Certainly, they hadn't forgotten that God delivered them from Egypt. It was only three months ago. But like we talked about last week, God remembering to act. The Israelites were to remember to act upon what they knew about God's character. God is the one who had graciously saved them out of Egypt, and he is the one initiating this covenant with them, just as he initiated the covenant with Abraham. The law that's given to Moses in the following chapters carried on this covenantal relationship that God initiated with his people through Abraham. The God who made this covenant with Moses and the Israelites is the God of Abraham. And God's mission had not changed. He was continuing the process of making the Israelites his own possession who would inherit the land, seed, and blessing. So the order of events here is important. Remember that the Israelites were first delivered out of Egypt, saved from slavery, and then God gives them his covenant. Much like the sign of circumcision came after Abraham believed God, the Mosaic covenant followed the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. The law given at Sinai, the Mosaic law, did not bring the Israelites into relationship with God. The Israelites had already been brought into relationship with God, and their obedience now was to flow out of that relationship. Their obedience was to come from their love of God and their gratitude to him for their great deliverance. By God's choosing them, they were set apart to be a treasured people of God, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So a kingdom of priests, what does that mean? Well, priests 
the role of a priest was to mediate between God and man or to bridge the gap between God and man. The Hebrews were set apart for this purpose. They were intended to bring people to God, the other nations to God. They were to show God's holiness to the world, and by doing so, they were to reconcile men with God. And if they were going to do this, they needed to know how they were to live and carry out this task. As a people chosen of God and set apart by him for his purposes, it was fitting that God give them a code by which to live so that they knew how to function in this role as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, These laws were given to Israel after their deliverance from Egypt. Deliverance came, and then the law. God chose Israel for himself, not because of anything that they had done, not because of any good deeds, but just because he wanted to. He wanted them now to know what things were pleasing to him as his people and what things were forbidden so that they would walk in his ways and be an honorable representation of him to the world. And so God told Moses what he was supposed to do, And that was to bring the people to meet him and to find out these commands. But first, they needed to repair, prepare. So let's read Exodus 19, 10 through 12 to find out about this preparation that they needed to make. Exodus 19, 10. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So the preparation took two days. It involved purification of their bodies and garments, as well as abstinence from sexual relations. The Israelites were about to meet the God of the universe, the great I am. And God warned them also that they couldn't go up to the mountain themselves or to touch it or else they would die. And so boundaries were set to keep the people safe. And God gave them multiple reminders that they were not to get too close. One commentator that I read said, this was no come as you are invitation by God. All the commandments, instructions, and systems that God was going to tell them were provided for them so that God's people would know how to relate to him as their God. And this was the beginning of it, this preparation time, because they had to know that to approach God required their reverence, their dedication, and their complete focus. In addition, only those specially selected by God were allowed to go all the way up the mountain into God's presence. They were to act as mediators between God and the Israelites. There was still a distinct separation between God and man. And God was the one who made the rules for how men were to approach him. It's interesting to note here when we consider Mount Sinai and the fear and the fire and the cloud, what Hebrews 12, 18 to 24 says. So you can just jot that reference down. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24 is written to new covenant believers. And it says that Mount Sinai, which represents the kingdom of Israel under the law, differs from Mount Zion, which represents the heavenly kingdom of God. We are living in the church age, and we have not come to a mountain, a physical, literal mountain like Mount Sinai that can be touched. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 says that you, we, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Of this passage, our pastor John says, no one could please God on Sinai's terms, which was perfect fulfillment of the law. Zion, however, is accessible to all who come to God through Jesus Christ. But at Sinai, Exodus 20, 18 to 19 tells us that thunder sounded, lightning flashed, a trumpet blasted, and the earth shook, and understandably, the people trembled. But then it continued to get even more intense. Fire and smoke went up, and the trumpet blasts kept getting louder and louder. The people were prepared. They were fearing and trembling at the holy presence of God. And then God revealed his word, his commands to them. So next, we're going to consider point number two, that commands from God encapsulate love for God and love for others. Once the Israelites were properly prepared, the first thing that God revealed to him were the Ten Commandments, recorded for us in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. These commandments obviously are very well known, and if you grew up in my generation or earlier, you probably remember that there was a time when these commandments were displayed throughout society, even in public school classrooms. They were put forward as a code of ethics that pretty much everyone agreed was good for society. But at least in the public school system where I grew up, they were not really explained at all in their proper setting. It's my prayer that our study today of these commands and the laws that follow will be helpful to put these words into their context and give us some food for thought about how we as Christians in the church age are to view them today. So as you can see in your outline, I first want to walk through the passage chronologically, and then at the end we'll come to the application of the law of Moses to the Christian life. But first, I think it's fitting that we read these Ten Commandments together. So look with me at chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. So verses 1 and 2 are not a command. These are a preamble that further establishes the basis for why the Israelites should be allegiant to Yahweh. Verse 1 and 2 say, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it was their deliverance that was to motivate their obedience to these commands. And then verse 3 contains commandment number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. Verses 4 to 6 are the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commands. Verse 7 contains the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Commandment 4 is found in verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Commandment 5 through 10 come in pretty rapid succession then in verses 12 through 17. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These 10 laws or 10 words as they are called in the Hebrew are the beginning and the core of God's revelation to Moses at Sinai. They are a broad, all-encompassing summary of God's requirements for his people. These commandments were spoken directly by God to the people of Israel. Look with me at chapter 20, verse 19. Chapter 20, verse 19 says, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And then look down at verse um, 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. The rest of the law is given to Moses and then he relays it to the people. But these 10 commandments were directly revealed by God to the Israelites. These commands were also very clear and easy to understand. They were weighty, though they are not very complex. Through these commands, God reveals his nature in clear moral terms and precisely lays out the requirements that he expected of his people for them to follow. All of the other regulations that are given by God in the following chapters are meant to show in greater detail how the Israelites were to live out these 10 commands. These laws can be divided into two headings, as I hope you saw in your lesson, love for and allegiance to God and love for others. The first four laws concerning the proper worship and fear to be given to Yahweh, and they reveal God's righteous zeal for his own name and for his own glory. The God who had just delivered them out of Egypt now rightfully is their ruler as as this new nation. And he wants the Israelites to know that he will not share the worship that he deserves with any other. As a husband chooses his bride and desires her complete devotion, The Lord had chosen Israel and wanted her to remain faithful to him. And this included devoting every Saturday as a day of rest in honor of God's resting after the six days of creation. And then the following six commands have to do with the way that people were to relate to one another. Some commentators have suggested that these commands are like the Bill of Rights of God's law. Only this Bill of Rights protects not the individual's rights, but it protects the rights of everyone else. So honoring father and mother is commanded, commended, while murder, adultery, bearing false witness, theft, and coveting are prohibited. It's helpful to consider, though, that the opposite or the flip side of each of these commands is to be considered as well. It was forbidden to dishonor your father and mother while preserving and protecting life and property of others and being faithful to your spouse and speaking the truth and being content with what you have. These are all desirable qualities. In Exodus 20, 18 through 21, we see the people's response. They rightly respond in fear at hearing the voice of God. They recognize their unworthiness to stand before him, and they beg Moses to be their mediator, as we already read. They say, speak to us yourself, and we can listen, but don't let God speak to us anymore, or we're going to die. And then Moses tells them something interesting. He says, 
Don't fear. God has tested you into order that the fear of him would be upon you so that you would not sin. So he's saying, don't fear, but be, be afraid. So this tells us that there is a proper kind of fear that we have in reverence and respect, responding to God, knowing that he does not want us to sin, that he punishes sin. But it's not a cowering fear because we know that we can trust him when we, when we walk in obedience. God desired relationship with his people, and God dictated how that relationship was to function. He is a holy God, and so the people could not come to him on their own terms without proper reverence and respect, but he did want them to come to him. And then at the end of Exodus 20, we see that God gives Moses directions for the building of an altar there and sacrifices to perform. And then in Exodus 21, we begin to see the various laws that stem from the Ten Commandments. And these are laws concerning lots of things, like the fair treatment of slaves, like how to deal with personal injuries, theft and restitution, punishments for sorcery and idolatry, for sexual misconduct, the compassionate treatment of strangers and orphans and widows, borrowing and lending laws, respect for rulers, how to deal with partiality and bribery, Acceptable worship of God, including the ritual regulations around all the feasts that they were to have. And it's clear from all of these commands that God, who powerfully delivered the Israelites from Egypt, is a God who desires to be rightly worshipped by his people. And he's a God who desires that the people were to treat one another fairly, with justice, with kindness, with love. God is a God who punishes sin. He's also a God who has compassion on the alien and the stranger. He values the lives and the dignity of the people that he created. And he gave clear directions so that Israel would know how to walk in his ways. So look with me at 23, verse 9. Chapter 23, verse 9. This just shows the heart of God and the heart that he wanted the Israelites to have. He says, you shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger. For you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. Their great deliverance was to be a motivating factor in how they were to go out and treat others. So we lack the time to get into a lot of the details of these sundry laws, as my Bible heading calls them. But remember to keep them in context of what's happening here. This is a new nation. These people, um, one to two million people strong, have only ever lived under a foreign king as slaves. And here they are out in the wilderness. They have no earthly government. They're completely on their own in the desert. And they know that they're going into a situation where they're going to be facing wars with ruthless, idolatrous nations. And they were going to conquer the land that God had promised them. But in in the process of that, they were going to be exposed to a lot of really terrifying things. So these laws were written to give to that new nation, literally a nation under God. And they were written for them to know how to function from the ground up. It was for their protection. It was for their well-being. They knew now what God expected of them. God had made it very clear. So to review, we've seen that God's commands flow from or follow a relationship with God. And that God's commands encapsulate love for God and love for others. And third, we're going to look at how obeying commands from God brings blessing. And we see that in chapter 2320 through 2418. Obeying commands from God brings blessing. In this section, God gives instructions about the journey to the promised land. 
The Israelites were to obey the angel who was going to go before them to guard them as they conquered the people of the land. And here God warns the people again about worshiping idols, worshiping other gods. He warns them about making covenants with other nations because he knows that those associations would lead them into sin and idolatry. God knew, and we will see this going forward throughout the Pentateuch, that the greatest enemy the Israelites were going to face was not the enemies of the land. The greatest enemy they would face was themselves and their own hard hearts. Just as they were reluctant to trust Moses as their deliverer in Exodus 5 and 6, just as they willfully violated the command not to gather manna on the Sabbath day in Exodus 16, just as they complained and grumbled on their way to Mount Sinai, the Israelites would continue to forget God and all he had done for them, even while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law. But beginning in Exodus 23, verse 25, God restates the blessings that would come if they were faithful to serve and follow him. Verses 25 and 26 of chapter 23 read, But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. And then the following verses also say that God would completely rout their enemies and would deliver the land into their control little by little so that they would have time to take possession of it properly and safely to their best advantage. God also set broad boundaries for the land that they were to conquer. God's plans for them were made in perfect wisdom. But again, his promises to them were conditional. It rested with the people whether they would follow God's instructions and inherit this good land and the rich blessings it held or fail to trust and obey the Lord and forfeit it. In Exodus 24, we read that Moses delivered all the words of the Lord to the people and the Israelites do not hesitate. They confirm that they will keep it. So 24 verse 3 says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Worship and offerings were given and the book of the law, book of the covenant, which is all of the law up to this point is read with the people reaffirming all the Lord has told us we will do. Now we can tend to be critical. You guys kind of laughed when I read that because we know going forward what happens with the Israelites, but this was the right response. This is exactly what they should have said. All that the Lord has said to us, we will do. Exodus 24, 8 then says that Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the sprinkling of the blood, the blood of the covenant showed that this covenant between God and the Israelites was now ratified. It was signed, sealed, and delivered. This harkens back to Genesis 15, when God made covenant with Abraham, remember, and he had him cut the animals in two, and then Abraham had to walk between them. This was also a ritual involving blood. And looking forward, we also see a covenant by blood is made, and this makes us think of the Passover feast before the crucifixion. When Jesus was with his disciples in Luke 22, 20, He says that the wine he gave them represents the new covenant of his blood. The new covenant of his blood. The new covenant in Christ was sealed with the blood of the spotless lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. 
And we are united with him when we believe in his death and resurrection on our behalf. So the Mosaic covenant is ratified here in Exodus 24. But God's revelation to Moses is not finished yet. Moses goes back up to the mountain, this time with Joshua. And God's glory covers the mountain. And the Israelites, it says, saw it like a consuming fire. Moses entered into that cloud. And he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. While God gave additional instructions about how they were to construct the tabernacle. And also where he inscribed the law with his own hand onto stone tablets. So Moses' brother Aaron and her were left in charge of the Israelites. And Cammie's going to tell us how that turns out next week. But for now, we're going to consider that God's commands, commands from God, also describe proper worship. So this is the fourth point. Commands from God describe proper worship. And we see this from Exodus 25 to the end of chapter 31. So while on the mountain this time, as I said, God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, also called the sanctuary or the dwelling place of God. Maintaining their relationship with God required a system to deal with the sins of the people when they went against God's law. For, you can see here, it was assumed from the very beginning that they would violate God's law. They would not be able to keep the law of God perfectly. So God made a provision for them. All of the rituals and symbols concerning their approach to God were meant to give the Israelites an awareness that while God was holy and demanded a penalty for sin, he also wanted to be present with them. He wanted to dwell with his people, his sinful and rebellious people, and he was making the way for that to happen. That way was through the mediation of a priest. And we read about the priests in Exodus 27 through 30. Through the priests, the people could draw near to God. Thus, the tabernacle and the priestly service actually represented hope for these sinners that a relationship with God was still possible. Hope that they could draw near to God, that God was coming to dwell with them. In Exodus 29, 45 to 46, look there with me. Exodus 29, 45 to 46. God says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So we see that again, right? The deliverance from Egypt is the basis for this relationship that he has with them. The tabernacle was a place where God's presence would dwell as they made their way to the promised land. Hebrews 9 one through five, just jot that reference down. You don't have to turn there. It briefly describes the tabernacle and its, and its furnishings, which you read about in your lesson as well. And then verse five ends with this phrase, but of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And that is true this morning as well. Of these things, we cannot speak in detail, but just keep in mind that the tabernacle and all that it contained provided a visual aid for the Israelites that communicated God's holiness, and how seriously he took the worship of himself. Offerings brought for the tabernacle construction, we read, were to be voluntary from the people's hearts. Everything that God demanded in the construction of this place, everything he demanded from the people without exception, was totally justified and was to be explicitly obeyed. Beginning in chapter 25, the tabernacle is described to us really from the inside out. 
with the inner portion of the tabernacle being the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was to be kept with the stone tablets. Things in the Holy of Holies were made entirely of gold, the finest metal. And then as you move out from that center point, less valuable metals were allowed to be used. And all of this was meant to be a beautiful visual parable of God's holiness for the people. So why don't we have a place like this today? Why don't we have a tabernacle or a temple? Is the church building the modern temple? Well, the book of Hebrews, again, makes it clear that the tabernacle in the Pentateuch was only meant to be a shadow of the reality that it was made to represent, and that is God personally dwelling with his people. And one day in the heavenly kingdom, we know that we are going to dwell with God in perfect holiness, but that new kingdom has already come in Christ, and we're, we're in it now, although we're waiting for its full fulfillment, but Christ has become the sacrifice for our sins, and so we don't need a temple anymore. Hebrews 10.19, you can jot that reference down too. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' death on the cross for our sins opened the way for us to have direct access to God. The veil that kept everyone out of the Holy of Holies in the temple at Jerusalem, remember, was torn in two with the death of Christ. And not only that, but the New Testament teaches that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell with them personally. And we are the church made up of individual believers, all indwelt by the Holy Spirit, We are now fulfilling the role of a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. And then 1 Peter goes on to talk about how the... Our behavior is to be kept excellent among the Gentiles. We've been saved and redeemed in order to proclaim him in word and in deed. The Israelites did a poor job of fulfilling God's commission to be his priests to the nations, but the promise to Abraham continued and did not fail. The seed came and ushered in the new kingdom that we now live in. So studying the Old Testament and the New Testament together puts all these things into focus, doesn't it? It just makes just one beautiful picture of God's working and God's grace through the course of history. So now I just want to take a little bit of time, uh, because if you're like me, you've got some confusion about what we're supposed to do with the law in the church age. And so I wanted to make sure that we look at what the Bible says about Christians and the law of Moses. So first of all, it's important to remember that some things have changed since Moses gave, since God gave the law to Moses at Sinai. First of all, is that Christ came and he said that he came to fulfill the law. We read that in Matthew 5:17. Christ came to fulfill the law. Romans 10:4 tells us that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10:6 then says that our righteousness is based on faith, not on our ability to keep the law. As followers of Jesus Christ living in the church age, we are not under the law of Moses. We never have been. 
In other words, the law of Moses does not have any jurisdiction over us. We've already considered that the need for the temple worship or the tabernacle worship has ceased. And combined with that, we know that the the sacrificial system is also done away. It's no more. Hebrews 9 and 10 tells us that Christ came to put away sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. Therefore, the sacrificial system as introduced in Genesis and Exodus and developed further in Leviticus is no longer needed. Our perfect Passover lamb was given to take away sins. Another difference since Mount Sinai is that Jews and Gentiles now have changed, right? We're both included in the new covenant in Christ. And so there's no need for all of the laws that were meant to keep Jews separate from the Gentiles, including the dietary laws. You remember we studied those in Acts where God told the apostle Peter that he could arise, kill, and eat things that were previously forbidden by the law for Jews to eat. We're going to learn more about that in Leviticus. But remember that Ephesians 2.15 says that God in Christ made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one new man, thus establishing peace. Therefore, the laws meant for Jews, intended to keep them from being tempted into idolatrous practices of the Gentile nations, are not binding for those who are now united in Christ, Jew and Gentile. So some things have definitely changed since Mount Sinai, but other things have still remained the same. Of course, God's character has not changed. And the moral expression of his character revealed through the law has not changed. What God loved then, he still loves now. And what God hated then, he still hates now. Another thing that has remained the same is that as Christians, we are called to be law-keeping people. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. So if we throw out all concept of law, then we're going to be sinning all the time. Christians are still to be law-keeping citizens. But now the Bible is clear that we are under the law of Christ. We see this concept all over the New Testament. There's a few passages I'll list. 1 Corinthians 9.21 tells us that Christians are under the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2 says that we are to fulfill the law of Christ. And James 1.25 says that we are to abide by the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. In Matthew, at the Great Commission, Matthew 28.19, when the apostles were being sent out, Jesus told them, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Notice Jesus doesn't say, teach them to observe the law of Moses. He says, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Well, what did Jesus command? Where do we find the commandments of Christ? Well, of course, all of the commands that Jesus gave in the Gospels certainly apply. But in addition to that, the rest of New Testament scripture, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, the whole New Testament is the law of Christ. Matters that you read about in the law of Moses that we'll see in weeks ahead that are not repeated in the New Testament were laws that applied specifically to the nation of Israel, but do not apply to us today. How you sow your fields, for example, or the combination of fabrics that make up your clothing, or the keeping of a Saturday Sabbath rest, along with all of the other festivals prescribed in the law. These things are not commanded anywhere in the New Testament. Other things are clearly addressed in the New Testament, 
and are to still be obeyed, such as nine of the Ten Commandments, excluding that Sabbath rest, and also the forbidding of sexual sins. These things are included in the New Testament. And what the teaching of the New Testament forbids or confirms, we are to, I'm sorry, forbids or condemns, we are to avoid. And what the New Testament affirms and praises, we are to do as God's chosen people set apart to bring him glory as our king. We have been set apart to bring others into the kingdom of God. So let's look back over our four points and just take a look with that in consideration of how they apply to us today. So point number one was that obedience follows the relationship to God or flows from relationship to God. In the same way that keeping the Old Testament law was to be a demonstration of Israel's already established relationship to Yahweh, our response to being redeemed by Christ, brought into this new kingdom, is to live in a way to please him, to keep his commands as they are revealed to us in the New Testament. As his ambassadors, our behavior must align itself with the one whom we represent. The great I am has authority to dictate how we conduct ourselves in Jesus' name. And as we love him and recognize our great deliverance, we want to do those things. We want to obey him and live to please him. Secondly, commands from God are about loving God and loving others. Jesus, when asked to summarize the law, did it that way, didn't he? He said that it was kept when we love God and when we love others. With these two principles in operation, we're going to be kept from all sin, and we're going to bring glory to God. And let's not forget as well that as we walk, how we walk communicates something to the world. Is your conduct adorning or making the doctrine of God beautiful, as Titus 2.10 says? Are you bringing glory to God who made you by growing more and more into his likeness, walking in his ways? The third point we looked at was that obedience brings blessing. If you're a Christian, you must remember that the command to walk worthy of our calling means that it's possible as a Christian to not walk worthy of your calling. But when we walk in an unworthy manner, this will not cause us to lose our salvation, just as Israel never ceased to be God's people when they disobeyed. But it will cause us to forfeit the great blessing that comes from obedience, from walking in a worthy manner. If you're a miserable Christian, you need to examine how you're walking. Are there areas of your life in which you're rebelling against the clear law of Christ as given to you in the Bible and missing the blessing of obedience? Ephesians 4 through 6 is a great place to start. You can prayerfully read those chapters and evaluate your walk with Christ. Are you living in an impure lifestyle? Are you speaking lies? Are you stealing? Are you refusing to work? Wives, are you willingly living in submission to your husbands? Are you praying at all times in the spirit? Because the fourth point is that Jesus' commands in the New Testament also describe for us the proper worship of Yahweh. In the New Testament, we learn, don't we, how to pray, how to fast, how to give, and how the church is to function, the role of pastors and elders and teachers and those who serve in the body of Christ and evangelists. We also learn about singing and communion and reading from the scriptures and baptism. God graciously gives us his word so that we know how to follow him and how to please him. We don't have to guess what God wants us to do to be pleasing to him. He has made his will very clear to us. And we are not on our own either when it comes to living it out. Because as we sang this morning, God is our dwelling place. He has come to dwell with us and we dwell with him. 
the great I am, the deliverer, the great lawgiver, and the righteous judge. This is our God, God with us. So let's pray now that we will go forward, worshiping him more fully and following him obediently by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your commands that were written for our good and for our benefit so that we know how to approach and how to live as children of a holy God. We thank you for the clarity. We thank you for just your great love and mercy in showing us exactly what we expect from what you expect from us and what we can expect from you. Uh, Lord, there's no ambiguity about it, God, and we just thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Lord, help us to respond to it in faith. I pray for each of us here that we would examine our hearts. And if there are ways that we are walking unworthy of you, that we would confess those things to you, repent of them, and take steps to follow you in obedience by faith. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Thank you that we know him. Thank you that he loves us and has come to dwell in our hearts. Lord, I pray for any here who do not know you, who do not yet have Jesus as their Savior, I pray that you would minister to their hearts today, that the conversations that they have would be helpful in leading them to the knowledge of you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.